Well, again, it is very good to see you this morning, and I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I think in your pew Bibles, that would be page 992. Your uh, sermon note page today is page 3 of your worship bullet, and we'll actually be referring uh, to that through the course of the sermon uh, as well. 1 Timothy 3. It's one of our passages that's most often read because it has to do with our officers. But I'll be putting and introducing, I think, a little twist on that today. Let me read 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. The Apostle Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. He said that already once in the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 1, followed by Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, this is another trustworthy saying, and he'll say this about five times in all of his writing altogether, um, referring to things that are, are uh, proverbial and understood and embraced. He says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Above reproach doesn't mean above accusation. It means that no accusation will stick. Above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. I'm going to ask you to join with me and pray. Father, I do ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I have preached this passage for many years, and that's because it is about the qualifications for officers in the church. And I want to just draw your attention to something. I don't know how this impressed or impacted you, but at first glance, very often, when you read these qualifications, they seem, this list seems to be short. You know, it seems to be missing some essentials. Um, Granted that we read that... uh, uh, overseers, literally the word episkopos, which means to look after someone, this refers to an elder. We read that overseers should be able to teach and hospitable. Yes, that's right. They need to be able to teach. They need to be able to welcome people and embrace them in their homes. But there's nothing here about executive function. You know, there's nothing here about the ability to set goals or to plan or to be able to recruit or delegate or hold others accountable. And I think that this is very remarkable, and it's worth noting that Paul's focus, it has often been said, is on character. On character, or what kind of person the overseer is, rather than on how much expertise or what expertise the overseer has. Fair enough. But this morning what I want to do is I want us to be more specific I want to get much more specific about what Paul's focus is and also apply these verses to us all. 
because I think they do apply to us all. And specifically, Paul's principal focus is not simply on character. It's on that aspect or um, facet of character on which other character traits depend. And what I'm referring to is self-control or self-mastery. Paul asks this rhetorical question in verse 5. He says, if anyone cannot manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And of course the answer is, he can't. He can't take care of God's church. Leading and caring for one's household, for those who are in a household and so forth. Not everyone is, and they're single adults or elders and so forth. But leading and caring for one's household really is a training ground for leading and caring for the much larger church. And if we can't, uh, if we can't oversee our families, we're not going to be good overseers of the church. We're not going to lead the church well. What I'm saying is, that throughout this passage, there is a more fundamental rhetorical question that is at work, though it's not expressed. And it adheres in almost all of the characteristics that Paul names. And that's why on your sermon notes page, you've got all the things that Paul named there, and all but two I put in highlight because they refer, all of them refer to this. Keeping in mind that overseer literally means to look after someone, here is the rhetorical question. That if a man cannot look after himself, how can he look after the church of God? If he can't lead and care for himself, if he can't supervise himself, he cannot supervise the church of God. And of course the congregation has no business putting him in a position of leadership. If a person cannot manage himself well, he is not qualified to manage the church. If he cannot hold himself accountable, he cannot be expected to know how to hold other people accountable. Well, that is the point. And I think it's the more profound point even than being able to manage your family well is being able to manage yourself well. Each highlighted characteristic on the list and your sermon page manifest, is a manifestation of self-control or self-mastery. And I'm going to speak about a number of them, not all of them, but most of them. The first thing he lists after above reproach, which is the grand point, that if an accusation is made, it won't stick. Why won't it stick? Well, because he's faithful to his wife. And literally, this is to be the husband of one wife. Literally. To be, and that doesn't mean... Um, you have to be married to be an elder. It doesn't mean that if you're widowed, you cannot remarry again. What it means is to be a one-wife or one-woman man. His heart, his mind, and his body are given over to one woman, period. He is faithful. He constrains himself and keeps his vows. He's that kind of person. Temperate, whether describing a, a climate or whether describing a person, means mild as opposed to stormy or out of control. It means being peaceable is distinct from being given to outbursts or stirring up discord. Uh, temperate, you know the word temperature, is a person who doesn't burn you when you're with them. They're not burners. 
self-controlled. Well, that sounds just like self-control, doesn't it? Also translated sober. But this term literally refers, comes from two words, it literally refers to being safe on the inside. Self-control means being safe or safe and sound on the inside rather than destructive. And people are safe to be around when they're safe on the inside. And that's what it means, to be safe, to be sound, to be, uh, uh, you know, use nautical language, you know, to be shipworthy, to be able to sail, to be able to navigate, and to be able to do it well. And this, in particular, self-control or sobriety, requires that we have the capacity or exercise our capacity to be aware of ourselves, to be able to step out, as it were, from ourselves and observe ourselves and evaluate what we're doing. And how we are being. It requires that we be aware of ourselves so that, negatively speaking, we police ourselves. We police ourselves as to our thoughts, our emotions, the things we give ourselves to internally. And positively, it means that we focus ourselves on, as what Paul said in Philippians 4, on what is true and what is noble and what is pure and what is lovely and what is right. And of course, you hear that description, it means on Christ, on Christ, first and foremost. This is self-control. And then respectable, he says. This is a word we've already encountered in 1 Timothy 2, and Paul talks about garments or the dress of women being respectable. The term comes from cosmos. The term in Greek is kosmios. As the creation was adorned with order and beauty, that points to its creator. So our demeanor, our behavior, um, is to reflect the order and the beauty of our creator. That's what it means. We know how to conduct ourselves. People who are self-controlled on the inside, which we just looked at, they're respectable on the outside. They know how to conduct themselves, and what's more, they really are committed to it. And when they need to, they rein themselves in. They understand what that is. So all these characteristics that I'm describing for you, really, are a manifestation of self-control, of self-mastery. Now Paul moves from there, from underscoring positive qualifications to underscoring disqualifications. And each of these really does represent a failure of self-control or failure of self-mastery. When he says, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Now, I'm not going to talk about all of these things, but I would like to comment briefly just on the first one. When Paul writes, not literally, not given to wine, that's what he says, not given to wine. Now, that doesn't mean Paul's a teetotaler, because what does he tell Timothy to do in 1 Timothy? He says, you need to drink a little wine once in a while for your stomach. Get things under control, man. But not given to wine. And I love that language. That's why I take you back to it. Because we do not, we do not abuse alcohol or prescription drugs or other drugs unless we have given ourselves to them. Unless we have made a decision 
to take down the natural barrier that exists. We know how to build and keep a barrier unless we have taken it down, unless we have given ourselves to it. It does not control us. These things do not control us unless we have given ourselves to them. And the challenge and the problem is that these lapses in our self-mastery serve to destroy our self-mastery altogether (laughs) in all the other areas of our life. What we give ourselves to becomes our master. And in particular, when you're talking about alcohol and when we're talking about drugs, what we are talking about is the destruction of the faculty of judgment. So we exercise poor judgment. We give ourselves to these things. And then before we know it, we have no faculty of judgment left. And it affects every single area of life. So Paul's very concerned about this. And I would say this morning for sure, the same, is, the same thing can be said. The same thing is absolutely true of pornography, which is not a chemical, but changes the biochemistry of the brain. We lapse judgment, we indulge again, we indulge again, and pretty soon we have no more judgment left. And this judgment that has eroded in us affects all areas of life, beginning with how we view women, how we treat women, how we understand our own sexuality, what we're thinking about. You understand the cascading effect. Self-mastery and self-control is the wall that we put all the way around ourselves and keep up. We don't take down part of the wall and say, well, the rest of the wall is just fine. Why can't I have this part of the wall open? We understand that once we have opened the wall, the wall has been breached. We understand that the effects are very significant and negative. Well, that's what I want to turn to next. I've said to you that I think this passage does apply to all of us. At least I am applying it to us all. And I've described, I hope for you, how so many of these characteristics, virtually all of them, not apt to teach or hospitality necessarily, but virtually all of them relate to self-control or self-mastery. But now I want you to think with me a little more directly about what's at stake. What's really at stake? Well, self-mastery, again, let's be clear, self-mastery is not... uh, it's not self-reliance. Um, if you ever saw the first uh, or the third Indiana Jones movie, Sean Connery says to his son, it's all about self-reliance. Well, it's not all about self-reliance, and that's not what self-mastery is. It's the ability to control yourself, especially when you're tempted or when you're provoked. To lose it. To cast aside decency. Your sobriety your even-handedness, your sound thinking, the vows you've placed yourself under, the truth and the wisdom of God. That's what self-control is. It's the ability to control yourself, especially when you're tempted or provoked. And why is it so important? The Bible answers this on many different levels, but I'm going to give you what I believe is the Bible's pragmatic answer. It is pragmatic, but I think it's in the Bible. And that is that because, because without self-control, you're sabotaging whatever good you are trying to achieve in your life. Period. You're sabotaging it. 
You're sabotaging yourself. And you cannot retrieve, you cannot relive the time you've squandered when you have, uh, when you have lost or neglected self-mastery. The book of Proverbs is the Bible's book of wisdom. We read it and we hear the voice of a king training his son to become a king. He wants him to be successful. He wants him to prosper. Same term in Hebrew. And this father has learned from God's word. He's learned perhaps from his own hard experiences. He's learned from his observation of others that if you do not walk in God's wisdom, you will not succeed. And God will not prosper you. No matter how good your intention is. No matter how high your ideal is. The beginning of wisdom is what? To walk in the fear of God. And that means to live aware of his rule over you and of our accountability to him. So this man in the book of Proverbs, this king, presumably Solomon, is saying, first and foremost, young prince, before you rule over anyone else, before you think you can rule over anyone else, you're obligated first to rule over yourself. And he says it again and again and again and again. Proverbs 16, verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit is greater than he who takes the city. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Proverbs 25, 28. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Proverbs 29, verse 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. This is self-control. This is self-mastery. And when I look at the qualifications for an officer, what I think Paul is saying is that those who are officers are to have made excellent progress in these areas because we're all called to this. This is what we're all called to. And it's not just a matter of setting a pace or a good example. It's, it's a matter of having sound judgment. It's a matter of being able to live and exercise sound judgment and to be a wise leader and understand what other people are going through and not contribute <laughs> to their struggle but help relieve it. Well, I'm going to show you some slides, if you don't mind. This is a little show and tell today. So, Nancy, I think you're up there. This, this is, uh, slide is entitled Self-Mastery. You see what it is. You see the dominoes. They're falling down. You see the hand blocking the falling dominoes. And then you see the rest of the dominoes. I really liked this one. Uh, dominoes, they're, they're, they're out of control. They're falling down. They can't hold themselves up. But, uh, but then you see the dominoes that are stable, and they, they are in place. This is a good illustration of self-mastery. You see the hand having been placed out as well, the hand intervening as if to say, so far and no farther. The chaos is stopped. That's the point, that the chaos is stopped. And I want to say that self-mastery 
is seen and can be viewed and understood as an intervention in our own lives. We intervene intervene with ourselves. We step back, we see what's happening, we see what we're doing, we understand the process at work in us. I describe it as as a two-sided coin. That self-mastery marks an end. Put that hand out. What does that mean when that hand goes between those dominoes? It marks an end to making excuses. An end to excuse making. Well, what excuses? Pleading our inability. Blaming others for our lack of self-control. Rationalizing our wickedness in the name of defending some ideal as if that makes it worth it. Or minimizing the real problem that we have with self-control. If we are not controlling ourselves, if we're not walking in self-mastery, we do have a problem. And it is affecting other people. And of course it will affect how people view you. But that's not the most important thing. It will tremendously impact your effectiveness, your success, your prosperity in life, or lack thereof, in what really matters. So self-mastery really marks an end to making excuses. But as a two-sided coin, the other side is, self-mastery marks the beginning, the beginning of accepting responsibility for ourselves. Our words, our thoughts, our attitudes, our emotion, our conduct. And given that that responsibility is God-given, and that our God is the God of all grace, and that we haven't been doing very well with it, it follows that we turn to God for help. We turn to him for help. Now, when you think about it, when you think about it, practical repentance really is regaining self-mastery of our lives. And we're willing to take all the help that we can get. And if we turn to the Lord, honestly, he'll give us all the help that we need, including from other people. Self-mastery. Let's look at the second slide. I like this slide. This is self-mastery. Many of you have seen the dog with the dog bone on his nose. Do you know how much self-control that requires? Have you ever tried to train a dog to do that? It takes a long, long time to train a dog to balance a bone on his nose. Now, why in the world would a dog do that? What in the world is his incentive? If you look at the picture, you can see the incentive indirectly. The dog isn't looking at the photographer. The dog's looking at his master. And his incentive is his master's pleasure. And he just loves to hear his master say, good boy. Okay, get it. And he gets it. And it's gone. I don't think we can master ourselves unless we're given a reason greater than ourselves. In fact, I would say even given a love that's greater than our love for ourselves. All training, it doesn't matter if it's a pet or a child or an adult, is a matter of learning self-control. 
Now, that greater thing for us, that thing we love more than ourselves, it can be some good that we elevate in place of God in our lives. It can be our family. You know, I love my family. I don't want to lose my family. I've got to get this under control. It can be self-respect. I don't want to loathe myself. There's nothing wrong with that. It can be some higher power, as Alcoholics Anonymous gives you sort of your options. But far, far, far better would be that it be God himself, our creator, from whom we have life, for whom we have life, who sent his son to die for our sin and make us right with God, to forgive us, so that among many other things, we can forgive ourselves. And has given us the Holy Spirit, really to help us. You know, Paul says to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity or, or a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power, love, and self-control. The same term, a sound mind. So when we see ourselves not in control, you know, it is... We know that we are not yielded to God. And we know that the Holy Spirit would help us. God would help us. We know that. We know that. It's the fear of God that really keeps us honest with ourselves. It's the fear of God that keeps us from excusing ourselves by appealing those areas where things are well. Everything's right. Seems right and ignoring the area that's so very wrong. It's not the way it works. God is the God of all of us, of our whole being, of everything. And then finally, I'm going to look at this one other slide. This slide is a quote. It says, One can have no smaller or greater mastery than mastery of oneself. One can have no smaller or greater mastery than mastery of oneself. Now, this is a quote from Leonardo da Vinci, And some of you know, he was a very good painter. He was a master in many ways. He was a master painter. He was a master scientist. He was a master mathematician. He was a master anatomist. He's been called the father of architecture. The inventor of the spring watch. He envisioned the parachute, the helicopter, the tank. He was the archetypic Renaissance man, the man who was a master in many, many different areas. And yet, Leonardo da Vinci wrote and said, the most fundamental mastery of all. There's no smaller mastery. There's no greater mastery. The fundamental mastery of all is the mastery of oneself. And it really is the key to mastering anything else. Self-mastery requires a not-my-will-but-thine-be-done humility. It does. It requires deep honesty. It really does. And both that humility and, and that honesty come as we live in the fear of the Lord, when we walk in the fear of God, when we fear Him, we hold Him, yes, in awe. We do... We do fear rebelling against him. We are afraid to do that. But we also hold him in awe. There is no one we would rather please. There's no one who's more worthy of our pleasing than him. There is 
a kind of fighting spirit and resistance that guarantees defeat. And there is a rescue. There, there is rather a surrender that rescues us from defeat. And I'm talking here about that surrender that rescues us from defeat. That's seen in that humility. That's seen in that deep honesty. That's seen in the fear of God. And you know what the result of that is? The result of that is transformation. The result of that is deep change. And aside, or, you know, beginning with sharing Christ with someone, I can't imagine a greater gift that you could give to someone than the gift of your own transformation, of your own deep and profound change. It has so many impacts on other people and it encourages them to do the same in those areas of their life where they need to follow your example. So, today, while we've looked at these characteristics for an elder or an overseer, and we do traditionally describe them as character qualities, what I've tried to say to you is that what Paul writes here does apply to all of us. And that there is a theme running through almost all of those characteristics, which is self-mastery or also self-control. And I said to you that, that pragmatically speaking, there are lots of reasons, but pragmatically speaking, without apology, practically speaking, this is a matter of knowing how to live so that you prosper and are successful in the things that matter in life. That this is wisdom from God. This is God's wisdom to us, which begins, of course, with our fear of him, our holding him in awe. It is this that enables us then to begin to remove ourselves, our defensive, defensive, proud selves, to remove ourselves from ourselves in order to take a look, to examine, to humbly and honestly begin to redress what must be redressed. And if you think you're the only person who needs to do this, I tell you, you are not the only person who needs to do this. This is part of every one of our lives. This is the part of the battle that we all are fighting. You know, it's not what others see in public that matters as much as what's happening internally and apart from the, the views of other people. You know exactly what I'm talking about. So I commend this to you. This is wisdom from God. In an age when people celebrate and justify being so completely out of control, this is wisdom from God. Let's pray together. Father, I love you and I thank you so much for this portion of your word and how it really does speak to us, how it instructs us, not just as those who would aspire to be an officer, but, but to all of us in the church. It's, we're talking really about sanctification. We're talking about maturing. We're talking about growing up and no longer being a child. Oh, but it comes hard. It is, it is a battle. It, it is fierce. But Lord, help us to recognize that there is this battle we're to fight in our lives. And we can't fight it without humility, without honesty, without the fear of God. And really... 
We shouldn't care what anyone else thinks about us when we walk in that kind of obedience and desire to live for you. And I do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Compelling reasons, no matter how controverted a passage may be, to take this to heart, to live it out, and be that people as Church of the Atonement in our day. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for this portion of your word. It's good to, it's good to be served, you know, choice meat. It's good to have to work our way around the bone. It's good to be challenged deeply, to think deeply, to review our presuppositions, to think about our great God, whether he's truly great or not, whether he's a great creator or not, whether the creation's great because he's great or not, whether the status quo of the fall is what we accept or not, whether we're being renewed in the power of the Holy Spirit under the gospel truth of Christ or not. It's good to be made to chew the Word of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that. All of us. Not just in this area when we talk about worship, leadership, or teaching in the church. Not just when we're speaking about vocation, calling, and identities, men and women. But in every area of life. Where is the Bible not controversial today? What truth of the Bible is held sacred and loved by all? No, Lord, you have called us out. We're the called out people, the ecclesia, people called out to be worshipers and to live and to worship in the spirit and in truth. So help us, I pray. And for my dear friends here who are not Christians, I pray that you'd be deeply at work in their hearts. Heal them of the sins that have been committed against them. Heal them of the sins they commit. And really, when I say heal, I say, please bring them to Christ, to the Savior who loves them, accepts them, forgives them, will renew them, who give them eternal life. Make them what they never thought they could be, never even imagined or dreamed they could be. And Lord, help each of us to find our identity in Christ every day, to listen to his voice and to no other. He made us. And we're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.